0: Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research.
1: Good morning. Welcome, Ian Foley, to the All Points West podcast. Ian is the founder and managing director of EquipMake which is listed on Aquis and has a market value of £110 million. EquipMake is in a really interesting and very topical segment of the market because it makes electric-powered motors and drivetrains for the automotive and aerospace uh, sectors, all made in Britain from your factory in, in Norfolk. I was having a look on the EquipMake website and there's some quite eye-catching stuff on there, which includes projects they uh, working on flying boats, work on a, a hypercar. But some of the ones that really caught my eye involve retrofitting hybrid and diesel buses with your own fully electric-powered systems, uh, one of which includes a, a project for Transport for London, uh, uh, which is working on the Route master bus, which is a much-loved design. So, Ian, um, welcome. Could you just... Take me into that. Uh, how did that contract with Transport for London and work on the RouteMaster come about? And how hopeful are you that it could lead on to a much bigger deal? Because I believe it's just a tester at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's right. So we we recognised a few years ago that retrofitting or repowering is likely to be a part of the solution, and we actually started a project, uh, our bus project, over five years ago. And we basically made the offer to Transport for London and say, look, we, we believe we have a solution. We will develop that vehicle and demonstrate it to you, which we've done. And that's actually following on from an ongoing contract we have with First Group at the moment, which is a fully commercial contract. So the vehicles are performing as anticipated, so that the range and the efficiency is as good as a new vehicle. And so uh, the trial's going very well. How
1: hopefully that might kind of lead on to something a bit bigger?
0: Yeah, so so I think there's, there's ongoing discussions with TfL, but there's discussions also with other regions and other operators. So we've already publicised the market a few months ago. We've got a letter of intent with First Group for a significant number of vehicles. And as I say, discussions are ongoing with Transport for London. And I think everybody recognises that with the targets that exist for uh, fully zero emission vehicles. There isn't really the time or the money to replace everything with new. So there's a kind of a realization coming within the market that you know repowering is going to form a part of the solution, and we're seeing increasing interest. So so we are pretty confident it's going to lead to to future orders.
1: Yeah, I, I spotted that you've uh, you're currently working on a contract with Newport in South Wales and uh, various other bus companies up and down the country. I mean, that's clearly an
0: exciting opportunity for you going forward. Absolutely. So it was a very recent development. We announced the contract with, with Newport, and there's similar discussions going on, as you say, with, with numerous uh, operators.
1: Is that something that you see as being the kind of bread and butter for the company
0: going forward? So it's 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 our opportunity to build a presence quickly in the near term. Um, we do already though have OEM supply. You know we're supplying emergency one, the biggest fire truck manufacturer in the UK. And Rev Group, that's the second biggest in the US, and that's actually OEM Supply, that's Supply to New Vehicles. And we have a similar contract with a a company in South America, which is, again, for new products. So I think the exciting thing for us about the repowering market is that it's, it's a way to get volume quickly in the short term. But we are very much a technology developer, so we've kind of developed the repowering market in order to sell our technology at an early stage. We've got huge other opportunities for the technology, both in that industry and in other industries like aerospace.
1: Just clarify something for me, if you could. So do you have to buy the batteries in from from elsewhere and then integrate the battery technology into your powertrain system, or are the batteries something that you develop yourself um, as well in, in Norfolk?
0: Yeah, okay. So at the moment, we're buying battery modules in. So so batteries start in cell form. Cells are currently made into modules and modules are made into packs. And a module is a kind of a large brick-sized thing. And in our case, it's about six kilowatt hours per module. So we buy modules in. We then create our own battery pack from those modules and then integrate that into our system. And that's quite important when we are repowering because... As you can imagine, each different vehicle often has one of our standard packs, but it often needs bespoke packs. If you look at the Routemaster for London, there's about four different size battery packs on that that are all designed and manufactured at Equipmake, uh, but we make them from module level, not from cell level. Got it. Obviously, there's a lot been said about range anxiety in the,
1: the car market as perhaps a reason why electric cars haven't taken off as quickly as some might have hoped. What are the discussions like that you have with bus operators about range anxiety and about whether the route master is going to break down halfway on the route to Hackney or, or wherever?
0: One of the really nice things about buses is that these are quite clearly defined. I think that the, the challenge with cars is that a uh, manufacturer will sell a vehicle and it's got a huge amount of different operations. So with the bus, they will be on specific routes. And particularly in London, those buses will be on that specific route for at least seven years. So what we can do is model that very accurately and give a very accurate preci- prediction because we know exactly what the route's going to be. And that's what we've been doing at the moment. So we, we model the route the bus is on and it's performing as required. So that then gives the operator and TFL confidence that if they specify that, that it's going to be able to do um, that route for the seven years. You've obviously got to take into account the fact that during the seven years, the performance of the battery will degrade its capacity at the end of seven years is likely to be about eighty percent of its new capacity and you've got to take that into account but it's but you can you can calculate that all up front and that's the nice thing about the city bus market is the actual operation is very clearly defined
1: yeah and just again just to kind of uh, stress I guess the retrofitting or repowering existing bus fleets is he- much cheaper than operators going out and buying brand new electric buses.
0: That's correct. I mean, it, very, very roughly, we say you get kind of two for the price of one. You know, the a, a new electric bus is in double deck buses in the order of four hundred and fifty thousand pounds. So, yeah, um, and it's less less than two hundred thousand pounds to for a repower. And the other big benefit for the operators is that uh, buses are a written down over fifteen years. And technology is changing very rapidly. So if you get a payback for repower over, say, seven years, um, if the technology has changed dramatically in seven years, uh, you've halved your technology risk. If you buy a brand new vehicle today and after seven years the technology is out of date, you've got to carry on running that vehicle for another seven years to get your payback.
1: Ian, could you tell the listeners how you got into this field? I, I believe you started out at another well-known Norfolk manufacturer, um, Lotus Engineering, which made Lotus cars. You've obviously got a, a passion for motorsport in this area because you've got a really interesting CV that's taken you through F1 and and also uh, a brush with the Le Mans race.
0: So um we could probably tell from my accent I'm not from Norfolk originally so I joined Lotus back in 1988 as a young engineer uh, working on active suspension so that was computer controlled suspension which was fitted to the Formula One car. So I moved to the Formula One team in 91. Uh, we had Mika Hacken and Johnny Herbert driving at the time. And that, that, was a, that was a great experience in a really tough environment, developing complicated technologies in, a, in that environment. Uh, Formula One kind of banned all of that stuff in 94. So I, I moved away then doing other things and set up equipment making in 97. But because of my Formula One background, when Formula One looked at going hybrid in 2007, I knew of a technology which was a, an electrically driven composite flywheel. So you licensed that technology, got Williams Formula One to invest in it. They became a partner and we actually developed that successfully on the Le Mans car for Audi and won Le Mans three times with that and commercialized it on buses. And that's how I first learned about the bus market. So that particular business was then sold to GKN, but I'd learned a huge amount about the bus market, which led me then to to develop the technology for, for full electric buses here at EquipMake.
1: So, who would have thought that that the technology that you were developing at F one would one day lead to um, you know mass mass transport market on on buses?
0: Absolutely, and, and people often say that. And I actually find that what we're doing now much more exciting because although a Formula is still a great sport and it's great technology, but it's very 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 highly regulated. So, if you look at what's happening in F one, the the regulations specify all of the systems very very precisely. So the difference between one team and another is really in the optimization of those systems. If you look going out into the real world now, it's technologically very open. So there's much more freedom to try and actually innovate in, in what we're doing now. So, uh, yeah, I, I find it a lot more exciting. So
1: as you said there, you know, you started EquipMake in 1997, almost as a sideline project, whilst you were also dabbling in the F1 market. When was it that, you first realised that some of the technology you were working on in F1 could have a use in mass transport like buses?
0: When Formula One went hybrid and we started developing the flywheel system, that led to Equipmake developing motors and inverters around 2010. We went through lots and lots and lots of false starts. So for many, many years, um, there was huge interest, but no business. But but what we did was we had some investment. We started developing the core technology, so we developed high-performance motors and inverters, which is the electronics box that drives the motor. We then developed the battery pack when we did the bus project. And a lot of this was through with government grants, small amounts of investment. And then really, everything took off, I, I think, as a result of two events. Uh, Dieselgate happened and around the same time, Tesla launched the Model 3 and I think they got something like half a billion dollars of cash orders for a car no one had seen that wasn't going to be delivered for three years. And The automotive market kind of said, oh, crikey, this is really going to happen. And then since then, things really took off. So there were a number of false starts between 2010 and about 2017, something like that. Uh, From about 2017, 18 onwards, things have really started to motor.
1: Can I take you right back to the start in order to try and get a clearer picture of where your interest in these areas might have come from? You said that you
0: are not from Norfolk originally. So where did you grow up? Uh, So so I grew up in Liverpool. um, I then did an engineering degree at Coventry. I was always interested in electronics and control systems. And that's why when I saw what was happening with Lotus on active suspension, um, that led me to do a control systems MSC at Cranfield, where Lotus were working with Cranfield on active suspension, and through that got got into, into Lotus. So really, I've always been interested in electronics and technology and the application of that technology. It's really a fantastic story, you know, what Lotus did. They, they actually raced an F1 car with active suspension in 1981. If you think about it, before mobile phones, when the PC had only just come out, you know, when the technology was in its infancy, they were actually racing this stuff in Formula One. So I joined them in 88. And again, I think being in at the very early stage of of that technology gave uh, a really good kind of first principles understanding, which I think is really important. When you're looking at where technology is going, I think looking at things from a first principles point of view gives quite a lot of insight.
1: Yeah, I want to take you... We kind of skipped through the Liverpool bit. I want to take you back there. So you say you've always had an interest in, in electronics and engineering. So where
0: do you think that came from? Yeah. What did your mum and dad do? I, I have no idea where it came from uh, because <laughs> within the family, there was no, I mean, my mum my was a teacher. My father worked in a, the office as a stock controller at a biscuit factory. They were both very much into sports. I had no interest. I was useless at sports. I was pretty good at sums, at maths and physics. And from an early stage, <clears throat> I was interested in electronics. I've got no idea where it came from, but the interest was there. So when I was a kid, I'd buy the practical electronics magazines and start buying bits and soldering them together without having any idea how they worked and making things. And, and uh, that's how it all started.
1: But they obviously encouraged you in that field. They didn't try to bend you to their interest in sport or or, or the the sorts of things they were interested in.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so so I think I was very fortunate in that respect in that I was one of those kids who had lots and lots of different hobbies and my parents were very supportive and, you know, electronics actually became one that, could, that kind of stuck. So they were always very keen on education. So we were encouraged to try and do well at school, which luckily I was reasonably academic, but also had this particular interest in making stuff And what I loved about electronics when I was a kid was that because it was all quite cheap, you could actually go down to the local electronics shop, buy some transistors and resistors and solder them together and actually do something. And it was a hobby you could actually afford to do and actually make stuff that occasionally worked, which was quite nice.
1: Well, I was gonna ask you, were you one of those slightly annoying kids that used to take stuff apart to see how it all worked and then leave all the bits right around the living room?
0: Absolutely. That that always happened. I would I would be taking things apart, and not be able to get them back together. Yeah, I was one of those annoying kids, definitely. Yeah. Probably still am <laughs> to tell you the truth.
1: So um you said that you were encouraged at school. Uh, do you have siblings?
0: Yeah, I've got two brothers, one older, one younger, yeah.
1: And and they were they interested in in electronics as well or were they uh, did they kind of follow your
0: parents' interest in sport? No, we're, we're all completely different. The younger brother was very sporty. The older brother wasn't interested. But wasn't but, but wasn't interested in engineering. I, I was the only one that actually was was particularly interested in engineering. And um, I have often wondered it it's, it is kind of fascinating. I think why kids are interested in certain things, where it comes from, because you know we're all in the same environment we're treated the same but end up with different interests it it is fascinating I've got no idea where it comes from but I did have a strong I guess again I was quite fortunate that from a early teenage years I kind of knew I wanted to go into engineering so I didn't have any of that angst of not knowing what I wanted to do. That's quite fortunate so at school you
1: said that you were academic I, I imagine that given your career path and your interests you were probably good at maths and sciences is that? Fair enough.
0: Yeah, so maths and sciences was was uh, my preferred subject, yeah.
1: And then you obviously got the grades that you needed to get onto university. You mentioned that you went to Coventry.
0: So Coventry it was actually polytechnic back then, and it did a general engineering degree. And then following there, I did a job I didn't enjoy, uh, and I opened up a motoring news, and it had a picture of the Lotus Active Suspension F1 car. And I thought to myself, Right, that's what I want to do. Worked out that they were developing that with Cranfield. So I got myself to Cranfield on an MSC on control systems, found the guy at Cranfield, a guy called Dave Williams, who was working with Lotus. And Dave Williams was kind of the inventor or the guy behind the active suspension. Found him, pestered him, got an interview at Lotus and got into Lotus. That's how it all happened.
1: Well, I think this will kind of resonate with a lot of people who come out of university and end up in jobs that they didn't particularly enjoy. What were the ones that you did that you didn't really get on with?
0: Well, the first one, I actually went back to Liverpool working for a company called Plessy then, and it was actually on the System X Telephone Exchange that was the first digital telephone exchange. Uh, But it was a large company, and, and fundamentally... I didn't fit into a very large company environment. Um, although I didn't kind of realize it at the time. Right. Um, and I went from there to work. So Lucas, again, was a bit better, but a large company. And that's when I kind of decided that this was all a bit too slow paced for me. And I, I wanted to move more quickly and saw an opportunity to get into motor racing.
1: So was that the kind of emerging signs of your entrepreneurial side? Because... Up, up until now, we've talked about your fascination with electronics and engineering, but clearly you do have an, an entrepreneurial side. And so that really explains a lot, I suppose, about how you've ended up ploughing your own furrow.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess when I was younger, I guess a kind of a, a role model or a hero was Clive Sinclair And when I was growing up. I mean, one of the electronics projects I did when he started he developed kind of build your own kit. So there's like a micro radio that fitted in a matchbox and things like that. And then brought out the, one of the first calculators. And so in my teenage years, he was a kind of a, of a role model. But I kind of knew I wanted to do it, but didn't really know how to do it, be, you know, be entrepreneurial. So, for a time, and I guess because I had a short attention span, I wanted to get on and do things more quickly. That's why motor racing attracted me and for a number of years gave me the, the kind of level of activity I wanted and the excitement. And gradually, over time, it, I mean, through motor racing and through sports car racing, when I got out of Formula One and went to sports car racing. You find there's an awful lot of entrepreneurs, when they've made their wealth, they decide to go boat racing. So I was quite fortunate that through sports car racing, I met an awful lot of successful entrepreneurs. I spoke to them about how they did what they did and thought, that doesn't sound too hard. I think I can have a go at that.
1: You see, you've almost managed to marry your interests with those of your parents because motorsport is still sport. It's just that you've managed to find your niche in it on the more technical side rather than the traditional image that people have of sport which is kicking a ball or kicking or throwing a ball?
0: I think certainly in motorsport it's, it's an opportunity I mean t- typically it's, it's a bit of a rough generalization but I think very few engineers excel at physical sports so I think something like motorsport gives people an opportunity to participate and get the same buzz there's the same highs when you win and the same lows when you lose so i think you're right in that the interesting thing for me though is that within my family there was absolutely no entrepreneurial influences whatsoever so that's also kind of interesting where did that come from again i don't really know but what motivates you now have you got any big ambitions left to tick off the bucket list Equip makes doing very well at the moment. we are in the planned process of investment, going from the stage at the moment where we are we need to get to profitability, and that 's going very well and obviously, I want to see that through, but also, I think the fact that it is important to me that you know what we 're doing in our own small way is making a difference so you know, we 're going through I think an- another industrial revolution. This is probably going to be bigger than the internet if you think about the electrification of everything. And as you said right at the start, here we are sitting in the middle of that. It's hugely exciting. So I think I'm very fortunate. Again, if you you look at the whole entrepreneurial thing, I've, I've lived through the emergence of the early PC market in the early 80s and kind of missed that from an entrepreneurial point of view. Then there was the internet boom and missed that. And now you've got the electrification boom. and uh, uh, We're not missing that. So we're in the middle of it. So I think it's hugely exciting to be a part of what is an industrial revolution that is really just actually getting started. Yeah.
1: You mentioned there about trying to stick with the company until you get to profitability. When's that likely to be, do you think? What are you saying to investors?
0: Yeah so that's going to be in 2 years time and we are on plan to achieve that. And then what's next then for Ian Foley? Well we have got huge possibilities for the business um, you know outside of what we're doing. Now what what big challenges is which is the really nice problem to have is we're now in a situation where there are too many opportunities and we need to maintain our focus. You know but we are approached regularly by global tier ones and OEMs uh, who are interested in what we're doing, which again, gives us some confidence that, you know, what we're doing is quite a rare commodity in the world at the moment, because these people are finding us. And I think that what we're looking to do effectively is leverage the IP that we've got and find the right strategic partners to grow for the future, because everything's growing so quickly that we are going to do that better with the right partners. And that's kind of what what we're looking at at the moment.
1: So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about licensing your your IP to one or more of the big OEMs?
0: Yeah, yeah, po- possibly. So we already, we've already we signed a, a license agreement with uh, uh, a fantastic company in India called Sona Comstar. They're currently huge in small, low-voltage motors. They wanted to get into traction motors, and we've signed a license agreement with, with those guys for the Indian market, and that's going very well. And again, what what we can offer to a larger Company is an opportunity to accelerate their development. As companies grow and get to large stage, they have to put in processes to control themselves, which by their very nature stop them changing very quickly. So what you find is when you're going through a rapid technological change, they are unable to actually change quickly because they spent years and years putting in processes to stop people changing things. So the right partnership with a smaller organization like ours, which is able to uh, be nimble, can effectively help a larger organization get to uh, the level they need to more quickly. So as you said, it's probably going to be things like licensing agreements where we are helping a larger organization to accelerate their development. And then we will get a revenue stream when they go into a larger manufacturer.
1: Just one final question, Ian. You, you sound like a man who's always on the go. What do you like to do to detach and what do you like to do outside of work?
0: Uh, I would have said, if you'd have asked me last year, it was motor racing. So I used to race historic cars. But in the last year, I actually got my private pilot's license. So uh, for the last few months, I've been uh, flying around the place, which, which is actually very relaxing.
1: Brilliant stuff. Ian Foley of Equip Make, thank you so much for joining us on the All Points West podcast this morning, and uh, I wish you
0: all the best. That's great. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Cheers.